Good afternoon, church. Happy New Year. Everybody's smiling, happy, stomachs full, anticipating the fast. We're excited about being hungry. Let me encourage you, though, it's not just about not eating. And I know that fasting by its sort of classical and historical, maybe even biblical definition, has to do with putting something aside. But let me encourage you, find the fast that God is calling you to. This is not a marathon. This is not a competitive sport. You don't get extra points or the express line getting to heaven. I mean, there's, there, there's nothing about this that, again, sets you uh, in, in, in comparison or contrast with your neighbor. Find the fast that God is uniquely calling you to. And it could be putting the screen down for a week. It could be food. It could be whatever it might be that you are deriving comfort from, that God is saying, I would prefer you get that from me, at least for five days. And let me just tell you that it's going to be an amazing time in God. So thank you in advance for joining us. Turn in your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. Turn to chapter 11. I don't think it without any explanation that we are in a very unusual and unsettling season. I mean, geopolitically, I mean, even over the past 48 hours, um, I think all of us have been a bit shaken, um, if, if not a bit um, consternated as to the events that have, that, that have transpired. Ecclesiastically, even over the past few days, we've seen that one of the major historical Protestant denominations is considering moving into two, in, in, into two factions over doctrinal and um, practice uh, issues involving membership and clergy. Even personally, many of you have found yourself in, in unusually unsettling moments. I, I got received an email in the past 48 hours of an individual that was greeted, uh, greeted in the new year by their job being eliminated. And so it's a, it's a very unsettling moment in many, many different ways. And you don't have to be in, in any sense revelational, prophetic, even spiritual to read the news, to be able to accurately apprehend and, and assess what's happening around you. And yet, it's interesting that as we look in Scripture, Scripture 2,000 years ago, we find these words in Matthew 24, you hear wars and rumors of wars. How many of you have heard rumors of wars in the past 48 hours? Jesus goes on, but see to it that you're not alarmed. See to it. That means you have a response and a responsibility that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. You know, every year we hear prophetic messages. And, you know, this year there's going to be an earthquake here. and There's going to be a tornado here. And California is finally going to float off of the... Uh, United States and judgment of God is coming to Hollywood in New York. I mean, and we've been, we've been hearing those words now for decades to the point that they don't mean anything anymore. Congratulations. Yes, there's going to be hurricanes this year somewhere. There's going to be an earthquake somewhere. But there was inscripturated, you know, <laughs> centuries ago that these would happen. But the passage concludes in Matthew 24, all these are the beginning of birth pains. 
All these are the beginning of birth pains. You know, we're going to hear a lot of messages this year about 2020 vision. I'm already sick of it. And so if you hear it, just go ahead and smack somebody in the head, all right? Just, just get it over with. 2020 vision, 2020 going to be the year 2020 vision. God's going to show you and blah, 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 blah. Okay, let's not even go there this morning. Can we do that? But Ecclesiastes chapter 11, this is where I believe that God would have us land. Beginning in verse 4. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. And whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. And as you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let not your hands be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both would do equally well. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, help us this afternoon. First of all, energize and enable our hearing, that we can hear well. But God, even more importantly, empower us to be able to accomplish that which you're speaking. Lord, we want to declare our absolute, God, not unwillingness, but our inability to either hear or heed well. So God, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think it's any secret that we live in a very clear post-Christian culture. I mean, beginning in 1980, and it's interesting that we're here in 2020, 40 years, what is a, the, the time frame of a generation having passed. I don't think it's a real secret that our hopes of Christianizing every institution from governments to education to industry, I don't think there's any secret that we probably have not achieved that goal. As a matter of fact, there's probably a hardness and a darkness in the hearts of men that is much more acute today than it was 40 years ago. Our counterparts in Europe, we have churches in Europe, of which my wife and I have visited many of them. And they have been describing and bemoaning for years how hard the ground is in Europe. And that is not a matter of having a softer seat, a better worship team, or a greater exegete. It has nothing to do with it. People don't care. It's no such thing as transfer growth. People aren't anywhere to transfer from. And so unless a relationship is forged and a disciple is made and someone is invited into that community, no one comes. It's a very different paradigm than what we experience here in the U.S., at least historically, but we are there now. It's very, very clear. It's that the idea that there is some Judeo-Christian ethic, that, that somehow that the great stories and, and, and that, that, are, that are described in the Bible are mainstream in the culture, it doesn't exist anymore. And I don't make that statement to depress us out of the box this morning, except it's important that we recognize the moment in which we live. Yet, I believe it's one orchestrated by God himself. One either believes that or they get real sad real fast. Because I believe that as much as it appears 
that this is the wrong moment, I believe that God declares it's the right one. It's why I've called and entitled this message today, Out is the New In. Because I believe that there is an out-of-season, out-of-sync anointing that God wants to bring the church into to avail ourselves of opportunities as a direct result of the moment in which we find ourselves. There is no accident that you and I are here, alive, healthy, equipped in the year 2020 in this nation. And for such a moment as this, there is no surprise there. God was not caught off guard. And let me also say to you, ladies and gentlemen, no one else is coming. You is it. You know, it's a little bit like when something breaks in your house and you want to call, Dad! And you realize, oh, shoot, I'm Dad. <laughs> you realize all of a sudden that all the adults, you as the adults, you know? It's just like, I don't want to adult anymore, all right? But look around, we're it. But I believe that with this is an unusual anointing. And with that anointing, unusual opportunities, that are going to be revealed and can be availed of. Out is the new in. And I want to talk about this briefly in three simple session, sections. The first, seasons. The second are, is seeing. And the third is sowing. The very first natural seasons, I believe, that God is going to suspend and supersede by a spiritual season. It's going to be confusing at times, disconcerting. And if I dare use a word that's really not in Bible vocabulary, fair. You know, we all have this weird idea of fairness. Siblings, younger siblings to older siblings, for instance. You ain't the boss of me. And yet we're going to see some things that are going to be a bit different. Ideal conditions are not going to present themselves, yet God is going to show himself in spite of and in the midst of. And I believe one hallmark of this orchestration is going to be an escalation and promotion of many that we would deem too young. Oh, you've heard it from this pulpit a lot. Pastor Brett talking about next generation and generational transfer. You know, and I'm not going to be here the same way. We're all going, oh, Pastor Brett, please don't go anywhere. We're seeing a deliberate insertion of younger men and women. And not just up here just, just because we're, we're trying to see, show how well-rounded demographically we are, but real leadership that are being entrusted to this group of men and women. Too young. But I believe complementing that are new demands and a fresh anointing on those considered to be too old. Pastor Rice Brooks joked, when was that 15 minutes? When you were not too young or too old. When, when, when was that 15 minutes? That we couldn't fall on one side of that line or the other. Because for most of us, we missed it. So it begs the question, then what do we do now? Too young. Well, David, despised by his family. Weird, 
out there, weird instruments and music, you know, and, you know, and then all of a sudden the prophet comes and we got any other kids? Well, we got the one with, go get him. The runt? The, the, the musician? Seriously? Yeah, go get him. King David, 30 years old. Son Solomon, 20, more or less. Look at the prayer. God, what do you want? Most of us would have been asking for cars and technology. Solomon said, God, I just want the wisdom to rule well. What kind of prayer is that from a 20-year-old? Elisha, disciple of Elijah, the only one. The mantle thrown on him sometime when he was in his 20s. Walk with Elijah in a discipling relationship for what we think is around eight years or so. So somewhere in his early 30s, that moment that Elijah was taken up to heaven and the mantle fell and the double portion of Elijah's anointing fell on Elisha. Early 30s. Timothy. Similar age. We believe that 1 Timothy was written, this, this, this letter that Paul wrote to him specifically about the youth problem was written. With, probably Timothy was in his early 30s. And that word youth, there's a specific word both in the Greek and it also has a Hebrew complementary word that anyone under 40 was considered a youth. So 40 was the magic number. And so congratulations if you want to know if you can go on the ski trip or not, all right? <laughs> We'll just let the Bible define this for us. But Paul wrote to Timothy about an obvious problem that had arisen about Timothy's leadership. Because some people were saying, the kid is too young. It was the same discussion that they were having among themselves. Is this the carpenter's son? It wasn't just his family background. It was the fact that, why is this, how is he able to do this at this age? Do we dare listen to this young man? But Paul writing to Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth, but set an example in speech, life, love, faith, and purity. And he goes on and he talks about the release of the gift given him. Do you live your life in such a way that everyone can see your progress. But on the other end of that perspective, those who thought that they were done, finishing up. I mean, the big thing I'm hearing right now among my generation is finishing strong. All of a sudden now it's about legacy. That's become, the, that's become the big word now. Leaving a legacy. You won't be dead in the ground a year. They will know who you are. Let me just tell you. Abraham and Sarah, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they thought they were done too. Psalm 92 says the righteous will flourish like a palm tree, grow like a cedar of Lebanon. And it goes on and it says they will bear fruit in old age. I shared this with Pastor Brett and some other men that I walk with in my life in a very intimate way. And over these past few months, just really wondering, am I done? I'm tired. I mean, is it time for me to take all this generational transfer to heart? Do something about it. Get out of the way. Step back. At some level, retire. And the Holy Spirit came to me and whooped my keister. 
He said, it is not for you to set times and seasons. He said, it's not for you to lay down. To lay aside an anointing and a calling. It's only for you to pick up and you keep dancing until I tap you on the shoulder. So you got to put up with me for a while longer. No, 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 no. Don't do that. But the issue was... It's not that I can't give myself away and train another generation, but there's something that's going to have to happen here of an interaction and intersection and a respect that generations are going to have to have in order to work together for this to work. And okay, boomer ain't going to get it done. It's not going to happen. And there's a couple of stories in scripture that highlight this and they're both pretty odd. 2 Kings, fourth chapter. There's famine in the land. Elisha has come back to Gilgal. And Gilgal happens to be one of the locations of a discipleship group that Elisha had known as the school of the prophets. Elijah made one disciple. That was Elisha, and that's only because God told him to do it. But Elisha, fortunately, had a different paradigm, and there were a number of schools of the prophets Young men that had taken vows of poverty that were there to learn and be trained by the senior prophet, Elisha. And in this particular moment, there's a famine. And so they're trying to get a meal together for these guys. And there's a big pot of soup on. Now, I don't know about you, but a big pot of soup for me just means we're poor. And I know some of you like soup. To me, soup is just a hot beverage. Now, I know by Thursday of this week, soup will be food again. I got all that, all right? But not a big fan of soup, all right? I still got teeth. I want to chew, all right? <laughs> and so, they, you know, they're trying to find anything they can to throw into this pot. And this young prophet decides to be a little proactive. And he goes out, and it says he finds a vine, a wild vine. Another translation, or more specifically, he found a gourd. And it looked fine. And as I researched into this, in this part of the world, there were a couple of gourds that grew that looked amazingly alike. There was only one problem. One of them was highly poisonous, and the other one was edible. My wife and I live up in another zip code in the mountains somewhere, according, and we have mushrooms that grow on our property. And my wife is always, I wonder if that's edible. Let us not find out. Because we don't know. But this young prophet, it looked good, and we're hungry, and I need something to put in the pot. So it says he cut it up, put it in the pot, and they all begin to eat. Until their tongues become numb, and their lips begin to go numb. And the toxicity in this particular gourd begins to have effects on their body, and they cry out, there's death in the pot. And Elisha says, takes a handful of flour, throws in the pot. He says, you can now safely eat. You see, the young prophet did what many times young people do. He was proactive, trying to help. There was only one problem. Is that what he brought back brought death, not life. And it took the presence of that older generation to keep that situation from becoming harmful. We find another story over two chapters later in 2 Kings 6. And, I, and, and if you let me have some, some liberty here, I think it was the same prophet. 
They decide they want to go out and build a bigger place. And so they're out there and they're cutting wood and he's barred an axe. And the axe head, it says, it slipped off and fell into the Jordan River. Now these guys had all taken vows of poverty. He says he begged to borrow this thing. He had no means of replacing it. And so here he is now, and the very means of building that he had is gone. He can't replace this, this valuable item. Elisha says, show me where it fell in the water. And Elisha causes it to rise to the top. And he tells the young prophet, and this is interesting, reach in and take it out. You see, Elisha didn't reach in and take it out. He had the young prophet participate in the miracle. You see, both of these stories indicate something about the symbiosis that's going to be required between an older and younger generation working and walking together in tandem. Are you with me here? And it's, the, and, and it's everything that youth brings and everything that age brings with it as well. Believe it, the other thing that's going to happen in this season it's going to be a season of contraction. Things are going to begin to move much faster. A good friend of mine, Gary Senna, works for one of the largest technology companies in the, in the world. He began to unpack for me 5G. Now, everybody's excited about 5G, particularly Apple, because it means we all got to buy new phones <laughs> to take advantage of this blistering speed that's about to be about. And you say, well, I don't really care. I can, you know, I, I, can, I can play Angry Birds and get on YouTube just fine now. But 5G apparently is going to kind of unlock the door to the Internet of Things. It's going to unlock the door to things that technology are going to bring that we've never seen before. Forbes in a recent article said that our world is going to change more in the next 20 years than in the past 300. And it could be either heaven or hell. And I believe where there's a 5G anointing coming in the natural, there's a 5G anointing coming in the spirit as well. Things are going to just begin to speed up. I believe that even conception and gestation of God's purposes in our lives are going to begin to escalate. Things that took years are going to take months, are going to take weeks. And we're going to find things speeding up around us. My, I have a, my oldest grandson, Ethan. It's just one of these kids that has unusual favor on his life. I mean, he can walk into a store and people just, oh, let me give you something. Here's a cake. <laughs> he just, he just, he just one of these unusual children that just, just favor. And so we were, we were at the beach together last summer, coast of North Carolina. I've been going down there my entire life. I'm from North Carolina, hence the carefully honed accent. And used to go fishing on the coast with my grandfather and my dad. So I, I, know, I know about fishing down there. And fishing, for the most part, only happens when it's convenient for the fish and horrible for people. Which means it's cold, it's windy, it's rainy. I mean, it's, just, it's miserable. Miserable. That's when you catch big fish. And so it was the summertime. The weather was beautiful. The sun was out. It was the middle of the day. We walk across to the sound. Little pier out there, four feet of water. Nothing out there but crabs and eels. His dad's been catching eels all afternoon, acting like a girl. Ew. They are disgusting. 
But here's Ethan with his $12 rod and reel. Zzz, bam! He's like, oh, you hung up on something. Yeah, he was hung up on about a four-pound, 18-inch red drum. Never seen anything like it in my entire life. Never caught one. It's like, oh, that's, that's cute. Zzz, bam! We're in the sound in four feet of water. He does it a third time. Every condition wrong for fishing. It wasn't the time of day. It wasn't the right weather. He wasn't even using the right bait. Nothing was right. And he was catching fish. <laughs> the disciples had fished all night. Pre-disciples. Jesus said, you know, if you put back out and throw your net on the other side... Listen, listen, I, I appreciate it. I know, I heard you teaching. You're all that in a bag of chips. But really, we do this for a living. No, really, if you'll do it. Okay, because you said so. You see, the conditions were wrong for fishing. It was the, the sun had come up. The fish had gone deep. This was not a moment to go trawling for fish. And yet Jesus' word superseded what should have been the moment for the catch. I want you to hear something. Ideals, conditions are not going to present themselves, ladies and gentlemen. And life and the advance thereof will require more faith, more obedience rooted in that faith, not less to that which God has called us. And the natural is going to make less sense. It's going to make less sense. And more than likely, it's not going to be highly convenient. Because God's more interested in your conformity to his person and his purpose than he is for your convenience or your comfort. You know, we live in a society that it's all about convenience. It really is. Well, I love to put my check in the bank if I didn't have to go click. You know, I really would like to have, you know, something delivered to my house for Uber Eats. Click. I mean, we walk into a retailer's house, if there are more than two people in the line in front of us, we feel persecuted. <laughs> Our life is really much about convenience. And I got to tell you, God isn't much interested in your convenience. And I believe that we're going to see some of that violated to see God's purposes come forth. But to do that, we're going to have to learn to live by the Spirit, which is my second point, is seeking, seeing, and submitting to the Spirit. You know, we talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. As I've testified before, I was raised a heathen Episcopalian. And in our written liturgy, we talk a lot about the Holy Ghost. And depending on your ecclesiastical background, maybe you came from a church that talked about the Holy Ghost. We're more grown up now. We talk about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but for all the talk about the Holy Spirit, for all of the purveyor of gifts, power enabling, there's amazing, amazingly little obedience to the Holy Spirit. Amazingly little reliance. He's a first responder for most of us. 911, we're finally going to speak in tongues because we're jammed up. 
Hmm. Let me just tell you, we're going to have to shift an orientation of how we do life from that which we can touch and see and perceive in the natural to that which God is doing in and by the Spirit. He's going to begin to take our word, take us out our word, that we are spirit-filled people. Act like it. It's not just a term of endearment or an ecclesiastical nomenclature, a handle where we can try to explain to people what we do at Grace Covenant Church. Perception is a word I keep hearing bandied about, both in, both, both in secular and in ecclesiastical writing right now. And, in, and, and perception, not just in what we see, but how we see it. How we see it. There's another story over in 2 Kings about three kings that come together in a man-made alliance. It has to do with collecting taxes. These three kings come together and they develop this strategy of, well, we're going to cut through the desert, save some time. We're going to try to ambush our enemies. The problem is there's a, there's, a, there's a strategic, tactical problem. We could run out of water, but let's give it a try. And they, so they did it and they failed. They're in the middle of the desert, soldiers, animals dying of thirst. And they look around and they said, has God called us together to die here? God wasn't involved to begin with. But there happened to be a righteous king in that alliance of three. His name was Jehoshaphat, who could call on Elisha, the prophet. And Elisha came and gave them this word. He said, you will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be full of water. Make this valley full of ditches. And by the way, this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. I'll also turn, I'll also give Moab over as your, as your enemies. Now, in this part of the world, you always knew because you could hear the, the wind would kick up. You could feel the atmospheric pressure would change. You could see it coming from the mountains. And so it was not a secret. It's getting ready to rain. And yet in this moment, what God is saying is you're not going to get any natural confirmation or affirmation of what I'm about to do. You're not going to see it with your eyes, but I'm going to do it. Your response it's not just revelation receiving it. Your response is whether or not you're going to participate in this miracle by making a place for this water to run when it comes. And that becomes our challenge. Very much like the Ecclesiastes passage we started with, that if you watch and wait, looking for the ideal in the natural, you'll never plant and you'll never reap. This reliance on the Spirit is also going to beg a motivation. Listen carefully here, saints, because this is a bit heavy duty. Genesis, the 11th chapter, we see the building of tower. Folks are together, one language, one mind. Let's build this amazing tower. Let's make a name for ourselves, name and fame, baby. Let's build a tower that will reach up to the heavens and so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered. God looks down, says they look down. Great Trinitarian passage. And they said, you know, if, if the way that we wired man, and God did this, wired man with capacity, with creativity, 
They had new technology they were going to employ of bricks baked rather than cut stone. It's going to make the process much more efficient, much faster. He said they can do anything that they put their mind to. So what did God do? He came down, frustrated their efforts. He scattered. What did he do? He says he confused their language and scattered them among the nations. And the building stopped. Why was that? Is that God was not in it from the beginning. There was nothing inherently wrong with building a tower. The problem was the motivation. Let's do it for us to make a name. Let's do it for us. You know what's interesting? The counterpart to this is that God came and confused their language. Building stopped. You realize it was at Pentecost that language was then restored. A spiritual language where all were worshiping in a known tongue. And building commenced called the church. Very interesting. That the same God that confused language in Genesis 11 was the same God through the Holy Ghost that restored language at Pentecost. Fascinating. God wants us to have a common language of building. That's one that originates with the Spirit, not with us. And listen to me, saints. God's coming to find out if the towers that are being built are man-made towers or God-made towers. Hear me. He's coming to check it in the church. And not just Grace Covenant Church as a single, single entity. I believe God's coming in the church, capital C, to find out how many towers of Babel to man have been built. And listen to me. He's coming to examine the towers in your life as well. And I got to tell you, this is a scary thing. And here's a problem. I got a bag full of tools. And I know how to build. I'm competent. But there's a crisis of competence coming where just because I know how to do something, it doesn't mean that's what God wants me to do. Listen to me. It doesn't matter how competent or how wise I think I might be. Unless it is directed and ordered of the Holy Ghost, God himself is going to come and frustrate the efforts. And many times as good charismatics, we start rebuking things. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke that. Let me just tell you. You know what God's going to do? He says, son, you need to stop rebuking the devil and look in the mirror. Because much of the frustration and failure around our life has less to do with the devil than it does about you. Sorry to be the one to tell you that. Go home and get hugged by your mama. It'll be all right. <laughs> and let me also say this. One of the values that we hold dear in this church and in our every nation ministries, is lordship. Lordship is impossible without the Holy Ghost. Impossible without the Holy Ghost. You can't make enough good decisions to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus, through the Spirit, in and through you, he's the one that has to manifest that lordship. You can't do it on your own. And let me just encourage you, give up now. It'll be the happiest moment of your life. I didn't say not to cooperate, not to participate. But what I'm saying, let God do something through you. Galatians, the fifth chapter, live. What does it say? Live by the Spirit and you will not, not gratify the desire of sinful nature. 
all this good stuff we want to be and become. It is the inworking and outworking of the Holy Spirit producing spiritual fruit in our life. The real question is not how can I do more? It's how can I somehow allow Jesus through the Spirit to let more pop out? Hmm. And it says, since we live by that Spirit, let us keep in step and not becoming conceited. Let me just tell you, when you realize it's the Spirit producing the fruit, you ain't got to worry about being conceited. And then lastly, Ecclesiastes talked about sowing. Sowing. You might not know whether this or that's going to happen as a result. Genesis 26, Isaac. Famine again. Seems to be a theme here. It says, the Lord appeared to him. It says, don't go down to Egypt, but live in the land where I'll tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while. I'll be with you, and I will bless you. You know, many times, and you've heard this, and I've preached this, that when we begin to see the provision run thin, when, when if you wish, when the raven stops bringing the bread, and when the water in the brook tends to beginning to go away, we see that as a sign it's time to move, but that's not always a sign to move. Many times what it's time to do is to dig a well. It's to find water in the place that God has placed you. You know, moving to the next thing, the next marriage, the next job, the next church, the next city, whatever it might be, it's always seemingly the easiest thing to do. And yet Isaac's blessing was to stay in this place where there was famine in the land. And what did he do in that moment? It says, he planted crops the same year and he reaped a hundredfold and he became wealthy. Now we hear that and we go, yeah, baby, more money, more money, more money. I mean, we hear that. And I've heard this primarily taught and preached as an apologetic for wealth creation and preservation. Could I submit to you? It's more an example and a model of a man willing to hear and heed what God told him to do. The blessing was an afterthought. And in fearful times, what do we tend to want to do? Hoard. We want to hang on. We call our investment advisor, buy gold. Or I guess if you're under 25, buy crypto. I don't know. <laughs> it changes how we invest. And you know, even nature, when it gets in a place of stress and duress, what will it do? It will go into a self-preservation mode and it will stop producing seed. It doesn't think about sowing and reproduction anymore. It thinks about survival. And it kind of goes into the, and animals do the same thing. My father-in-law, who was a vet, kept sheep. He was also a pastor, just so he could figure out how this thing worked. He said, and when sheep get harassed, the first thing that happens, they stop reproducing. This is one of the reasons that the enemy loves to come and harass the people of God. It's to stop them from reproducing. Because it's the first thing that we do. But even a plant will go into a survival mode and stop producing seed. And yet, God is calling us to sow. 
in season, out of season. And no, I'm not going to take an offering to punctuate this. This is not just about money. But how are you sowing your life? How are you sowing your gift? How are you sowing whatever it is that God has entrusted to you that you will give an account for when you get to heaven? How did you invest? Haggai, you might want to think about what you're doing. You've planted much and you've harvested little. You've got a purse with holes in it. And it begs a question for you and for me. What are we sowing to? Are we sowing to the Spirit or sowing to self? Galatians 6.8 says, He who sows to his flesh out of the flesh will reap, but he who sows to the Spirit out of the Spirit will reap everlasting life. Now, I know this passage in its, in its purest form of interpretation talks about sowing to sin. I understand that. But you realize you can sow to the flesh that's not overt sin, but just sow to the flesh of comfort and convenience. Sow to the flesh of that feels good. It's not necessarily sinful as it would be identified by mama or daddy or the church or the Bible, but you're still sowing to the flesh. Because many times sowing to the spirit doesn't feel real good to the flesh. Hmm. And yet Hosea tells us this. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up the unplowed ground for it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. And I can't think of a better passage as we step into a moment of consecration, prayer, fasting, and worship. Seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. I think that needs to be a prayer for the church. What does a shower of righteousness even look like? Interesting question. So what have I said this afternoon? Out is the new in. There's an out of sync, out of season anointing for us. If we will step into the fullness of that. Understanding that God has created the moment in which we find ourselves. It is not accidental. It's absolutely prophetic and providential if we will step into an out-of-season anointing. Not waiting for all the right atmospheric conditions, all the right environmental or relational or financial or occupational conditions around our life to come into whatever alignment we think that they should. But if we will step into an out-of-season anointing, God will meet us. Seeking, seeing, and submitting to the Spirit. The spirit field doesn't just become, again, a term of endearment or an ecclesiastical identifier. But being men and women of the spirit, that we are quick, not just to perceive and receive, but we're quick to respond. When he says to go, to speak, to be quiet, coming, going, that we're instant. Jesus had compassion on those to whom he ministered, but he was motivated what he saw his father in heaven doing and third sowing how are we going to sow are we going to sow to self 
Oh, God, I'm going to do a little righteous thing over here so you can maybe bless me over there. God, I'm going to give an extra fiber this morning. Maybe you can give me an extra tenor next week. How are we sowing? Are we sowing to the flesh, sowing to the spirit? Pray with me.